Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Consulting with Authority. This is your host, Scott Cantrell, joined by um, a really fun dude. Uh, I don't know if he wants me to call him that, but uh, he and I have, have talked a couple times, and um, uh, Rick is just an easy guy to know, an easy guy to talk to. He also happens to be uh, an incredible expert and consultant in the world of change management, working with leaders to help them make the change within their organization much more efficient and effective. Uh, Rick, I hope I can call you a fun dude. Uh, welcome to the podcast. I love it. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> no, that's that's really great. Often the introductions are these boring litanies of articles and <laughs> yeah. stuff. So this is great. I love it. So. Uh, good. Well, I really appreciate you coming on and. Um, from our our initial conversation, in fact, you and I just talked about this before we started the recording. I I let you know that from the first thirty seconds of our conversation, it you kind of hit me over the head um, with what you've been working on. And um, anyway, I don't want to take anything away. Talk a little bit about, or just tell people uh, the type of work that you're doing um, and kind of the framework that drives the work that you're doing, if you would. Perfect. Well, actually, it's all all of my work is based on two questions, and that's kind of preoccupied me for a lot of years. Uh, and one is, why do people support us? And the other is, why do they resist us? And so if you're trying to get a project done at work, a big change, or you're just trying to get the person who sits across from you in the office interested in something that you're interested in, what works in your favor and what gets in the way? And quite often, what can we do to avoid those avoidable unforced errors. Yeah. It's, uh, it's <clears throat> on one hand, it can be difficult. On the other hand, at the core of it, it's really not all that difficult if we pay attention to the right things. So that, that's interesting. And so again, I just want to restate those questions. Why yeah. do people support us and why do people resist us? And yeah. that, that, that framework that you just shared here was the thing that kind of smacked me over the head. And as soon as you said that, I immediately took the note down. And ever since our conversation, we talked about that, I think about a week ago, I've, I've, I've been thinking about those questions. Wow. And, um, uh, and it, it occurs to me that certainly everything in business, um, it, it's easy to, to uh, frame those questions within the context of business. You know, uh, and obviously, this podcast is for other independent consultants, and that's the world that, that you're in, the world that I'm in. Yeah. So it's a world that we're intimately familiar with. So it's easy to ask those questions related to that, but you're going beyond that, right? These questions apply not only at the business level, but also at the personal life level. And I think it's really interesting that that these questions and the principles behind them, which I know we'll, we'll get into a little bit here, the principles behind them that allow us to get more people on board with us to support us and hopefully to remove or at least mitigate the resistance that we're seeing um, can be incredibly effective in a life situation. And so maybe speak to well, maybe speak to the essence of both of those sides of this of this question of, of these questions. Okay. Well, first of all, when I'm talking about like resistance, and we say resistance to change, I am not talking about something that is hundred percent internal, like why can't I lose weight? Right. Okay. What I'm talking about is us in relationship to other people. How come every time I talk to Scott, his eyes glaze over? What's going on in that? Won't happen, but I understand. (laughs) Okay. But what happens in that 
that space between us. And so it could be you and me, or it could be you're a thou representing a thousand people or the entire organization. And if the better we understand kind of what's that dynamic, that energy that's going on, the better chance we have of really building the kind of support we need without, without all the headaches. Um, absolutely. Uh, and that makes, you know, that conceptually makes sense. I want to dive a little deeper before we do that though. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't have you talk a little about your background and how you got to where you are and kind of what brought you to these two questions that you're now, you know, focused on. So tell us a little bit about uh, how you got to where you are. Well, I was in graduate school at George Washington studying in a program to eventually work with emotionally disturbed kids in schools. Mm -hmm. And this is not going to be as long a story as you might think, uh, but it's, um, what the philosophy of the program, which I didn't realize at the time, was pretty radical. And the, the philosophy was a lot of these kids aren't disturbed. It's the schools that are disturbed. Mm -hmm. And if you can change the schools, if you can change the system, you'll have uh, fewer kids acting up, acting out, all of that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So I bought that philosophy then. I still buy it. Uh, when I'm, I don't work in schools, but I work in agencies and corporations, and it still applies. Mm -hmm. uh, when you've got tons and tons of resistance, you should not be looking at all those individuals. You should, you should be looking at what's going on in this organization. Interesting. Okay. And on the positive side, if you've got a place where morale is high and people are just doing great work and all of that, say what's going on in the organization. Yes, you might have hired well, but what are you doing to kind of keep that energy in a, in a, moving in a positive direction? At any rate, so I'm working in a school. Now, I, you got it. <laughs> this is an amazingly arrogant story. I, <laughs> I've been teaching for two years and I was teaching in one of the largest school systems in the United States. And I came up with an idea for changing the school system in a way that could really help those thousands of kids, two mm -hmm. years experience. So <clears throat> all by myself, I wrote a proposal and sent it to the superintendent. I mean, he know, does not know me at all. <laughs> you know, and I didn't had no gatekeeper, anybody to say, hey, you ought to listen to this Rick guy. Yeah. So, of course, they, they want to, you know, placate their teachers. And they also had a union or the teachers had a union. So they said, sure. And I met with the superintendent of instruction and I start explaining my whole thing. Mm -hmm. And and I said, you know, Dr. So-and-so, my stuff is really based on a lot on the work of the eminent Swiss child psychologist, Jean Piaget. And I start going on and he stopped me. He said, Mr. Maurer, it may surprise you to learn that, that the leaders of this organization, the school system, have known about Dr. Piaget's work for quite some time. And he might as well have said, and thank you for coming in and don't let the door hit you. Well, right. so, so for a while, I was thinking, oh, that's, that's it. That's old folks, you know, uh, they're dying in their ways. They're afraid of fresh ideas. I mean, just all that kind of stuff. Sure. And then it started occurring to me that, oh, maybe it's not them. Maybe it's me. Mm. And so I started going back to school and learning about change. And I didn't like what the business press was saying about resistance because it was saying, basically, uh, you need to overcome resistance mm -hmm. and yeah. make them do it. And I thought that doesn't fit with my experience and it doesn't fit with what I was learning in martial arts and psychology. And that. So uh, I was out consulting and I ended up just writing a book in the 90s called Beyond the Wall of Resistance, which says, no, trying to overcome is going to create more resistance. Yeah. What you need to do is 
get curious about the resistance, embrace it, if you will. The word embrace resistance, that phrase rarely comes up anywhere, but it's the idea is that if we listen to other people, that doesn't mean we have to give in, but we listen and we're paying attention. Things start to shift quite often. Mm-hmm. Like I'm actually listening to you. Whoa, what a concept. And I might actually allow myself to be influenced by what you're saying. Mm-hmm. And it's just a different, it's a different quality of conversation. And that mean that conversation can be between you and me or between groups of hundreds of people. Yeah. Uh, that that's really fascinating. And so this is a great transition and segue into kind of the, the elements, uh, com- you know, principal foundational parts of how, how someone um, creates support for themselves or an idea or a practice or whatever it may be. And then at the same time, how does someone effectively, to use the phrase, how does someone effectively embrace resistance in, in a way that is effective um, so that because I've had the exact I mean, I think it's I think it's the human condition, right? I've had the exact same experience. Uh, you know, uh, the, maybe the most elementary example is, you know, I'm a kid and I'm told to do something that I don't want to do. And I rail against it. Now, ultimately, maybe I learned the lesson, but there was a lot of this, there was a lot of conflict, um, that, you know, wasn't fun at the time. It created a lot of stress, not just for me, but for the parents and my older sister too. Um, so, so maybe kind of Walk us through the principal foundations of, of both sides of this. Okay. I what I ended up, what I came up with is kind of three lenses for looking at support and resistance. I okay. call them level, I call them levels. I wish I had never done that. Uh, because it, I don't mean you do level one, you check it off and move to level two. It means level one is the easiest one to work with for most of us. Levels two is harder, and level three is hardest. Here's, I, let me start with the resistance side because the, the, the phrases are more memorable. Memorable Level one on resistance is I don't get it. I see your lips moving and I don't have a clue what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Now, that can happen. Uh, imagine that you're the head of information technology. You're, you're meeting a bunch of, with a bunch of accountants or the human resource people. And you're using the technical jargon that works brilliantly in your staff meetings. And you're talking to these people who do not have a clue what you're talking about. So sometimes it's just the language that we use, or we're providing way too much intricate detail when that's not what's called for. That's a pretty easy one to get over. Okay. Yeah. PowerPoint was invented for level one. And uh, right. Okay. All right. It was not invented for the rest of what I'm talking about. And unfortunately, it gets used all over the place. All right. Level two is I don't like it. And what mm. that means is, it's a strong emotional reaction against the idea. In other words, I'm afraid and afraid at a very deep level, like survival level. I could lose my job. I could, I'm an old dog. I can't learn new tricks. We, we got a kid in college. What are we going to? And suddenly, you know, that, that change that is affecting thousands affects one person, and that's me. Mm-hmm. So, so imagine you're in a meeting with me and I'm presenting something. Or the people watching your podcast are. And I say, and folks, this big change that we're going to be going through uh, in a lot of organizations involves a significant amount of downsizing. You hear that and you go, boom, <laughs> you go into, oh, it's become very personal. And what you miss is the rest of the sentence. But right. I can assure you that's not going to happen here. Right. Because our brain is already 
otherwise engaged. So yep. level two is really based on strong fear. Level three, so I've got now, I don't get it, I don't like it. Level three is I don't like you. Mm. And what that, what I mean by that is I don't have trust and confidence in you or who you represent to lead something like this. Yeah. So I may, you know, you know, we may like each other fine to have lunch or, you know, to, to do some sport together. But in terms of, are you going to follow Rick? No, because he goes to workshops and reads a new book and we start something new. And then three months later, he's found something new. Yeah. Uh, so th those, that's the negative side. What you're looking for in support is the opposite side of each of those lenses. So you're looking for people to understand what you're saying. You want them to have a favorable reaction. And by that, I mean, like, hey, how can I help? Mm -hmm. They're leaning in. They want to know more. They want it to be a success. And three, they have some, uh, sufficient trust and confidence in you or the leadership team to actually say, you know, I don't understand it completely yet, but I trust now. Mm -hmm. And so what I do with my clients is say, you need to find out the answers to those questions. And I'll be glad to give an example of that, but I, let me just stop right there to see. No, I, that is phenomenal. And what I love about this model is the app, and I should have said this earlier, but the application of this is obviously far and wide, but specifically for the viewers and listeners here, you know, normally in these interviews, I will take a consultant like you, Rick, and ask you to talk about your business profile. We'll, we'll, we will. We'll talk about some of that later on. But there's so much rich application in, in these two questions, uh, support and resistance. And there's so much application. I saw the application immediately when you and I first spoke. And so I wanted to dive into this because as an independent consultant, and again, there's application everywhere, but as an independent consultant in this business space, the nature of the podcast the nature of a consultant is to, or the objective of a consultant is to improve the condition of a client. And that almost inevitably means you have to elicit and create support from the, you know, project sponsor or decision maker okay. and potentially their team. And it almost inevitably means there is, there are going to be perceived points of resistance or real resistance that has to be mitigated or removed. Um, to make a project work, to win the project in the first place from a business development standpoint, to get a client on board with the next phase of the project that's that you know that you could serve them. And so, as a, the reason that I've been thinking about these questions since you and I spoke is I've been thinking about twenty twenty two. We're we're recording this at the end of twenty twenty one, and I've been thinking about my my own business development efforts in twenty twenty two, and it occurred to me that the nature of good marketing and meaningful marketing, not just, you know, I'm awesome. Look at all the success we've had, you know, not the chest pounding stuff, but the meaningful articulation of, of my value proposition ultimately comes down to uh, in, in not so many words, it comes down to these two questions um, and the results that I was able to create related to, okay, this prospect perceived this kind of resistance yeah. And here's how we embraced it and, and dealt with it so that we could create this level of support. And here were the results from that. So anyway, I just I want to take a note and, and talk about why we're diving into this, into your expertise so quickly yeah. in the interview, because the application, I think, for everybody who is in this space where our goal is change, our goal is yeah. to create change for our clients. 
is it's so vital. So anyway, continue, uh, please. But actually, it reminded me of a story that uh, is directly related to what you're saying. Uh, A guy named Neil Rackham, who ended up writing a book called Spin Selling. Absolutely. It's on the shelf behind me somewhere. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Well, he was hired this before he had a book out or anything. And he said, uh, some company said, we need to know what our our best salespeople are doing. What's what's the key? How are they closing sales? That's a, mm-hmm. a big kind of thing. You know, what techniques, what, you know, are they, so so we'd like you to, you know, follow them around and let us know. Mm-hmm. So he did. So he goes back to meet with the executive team and they said, so what are our stars doing? And they said, nothing that I can see. They're not doing anything different. And they said, no, no, what are they doing to close the sales? Right. They said, they aren't doing anything. And they think this guy's a, a joke. <laughs> and I, I think that was the end of his contract. But that got him really curious about what was going on. And the difference was most salespeople, the whole thing, like you and I are talking, mm-hmm. is I want to sell you this book. So my whole thing is about, mm-hmm. hey, don't you have sleepless nights? Hey, would you like to do that? And like, you know, it's it, everything is trying to leap, get those yeses up to a close. Right. Okay? For us as consultants, that is particularly dangerous. Correct. Because it's not it's not like a toaster that if they make a bad decision, it can, you know, place. And it's it's about the relationship. And what he found was that the better salespeople listened a lot. I mean, I this sh- shouldn't be earth-shattering, but for a lot of people, it is that they say really were working hard uh, to really try to get what was going on with the client. And in fact, he would ask people, he would record what had gone on, but as the salespeople came out of the meeting, he'd say, how'd it go? And quite often they go, oh, that's great. He said, well, why'd you say great? He said, I learned a lot about the client. Uh, And he said, but he said, what what they learn is, wow, they've got branches in five countries. Wow, they've done, this is all stuff that the client already knew. Mm -hmm. But the benefit was for this person, the salesperson. Yeah. Consulting people were saying, so what are the challenges being in five countries or, you know, that kind of thing. So they really came out. So there was this conversation that actually was not just a you speak and I speak, but it's this, God, that's that's interesting. Tell me more about it. Yeah. Right. It's more like the conversation we had in preparing for this. I mean, I felt myself kind of leaning in toward the screen a lot. Right. And I felt like we were bouncing off of each other. So that. You know, so I guess you could call that a technique, but I think it's really much more a way of of being. I I completely agree, and it, it you know uh, the listen word I think is absolutely critical and and vital. And the other thing that I'm hearing you say, um, you know, kind of in between the lines, is it's authentic, right? Hmm. We're we're not listening for the sake of the sale or the sake of you know, I'm not listening. Well, I don't remember the exact quote. And if I tried to recite it, I would butcher it, but I'm not listening with the intent to respond. I'm listening with the intent to learn. Right. Yes. And, yes. and, and authentically trying to understand where that person is coming from. Um, you know, I've, I've said this in other interviews, but it's especially appropriate here. A, from a business development standpoint, talking about sales, but this is directly related to, to the essence of this conversation too. Uh, when a pros- when a prospective client believes that you understand their problem as well or better than they do, they will assume you have a solution to it. 
Hmm. And, and, you know, another word for that is called empathy, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, pure empathy, but that, but it, it needs to be authentic, right? It doesn't need yes. to be disingenuous. Um, and you better have a, if you, if you are going to promise a solution, you better be able to back it up, of course. Um, yeah. But, uh, but from the standpoint of listening uh, and authentically listening, you know, that that's exactly what you're talking about. And it absolutely may, I will tell you when I buy something, I'm buying from the people who are asking me good questions, who yeah. are authentically listening and then responding appropriately to what I say. And if they do those things and, and I believe they have a solution that will work, I'm, I'm signing. Right. Because why would I not? There's right. tr- there's I, I, I like I, I get it. I like the person and I trust the person. It's amazing. Yeah. yeah. Let me tell you a quick story. I uh, number. A number of years ago, we had to have we had a leak in our roof, and, and nobody seemed to be able to do anything. So we have a version of Consumer Reports for the Washington D.C. area, okay. Washington mm-hmm. Consumer Checkbook. And so I, I looked at roofers and found three, and I said, and I called each one. I said, look, what I'm looking for is to get a bid, somebody to take a look and bid. But I am not making a decision on the spot. I'm not going for low bid. I'm really going for somebody yeah. who they can do the job. So, but I want you, if you're going to come out, I want you to know that that's what I'm doing. I'm not going to make a decision. Yeah. So one guy comes out, he's actually the first guy. And he said, yeah, I think this is what it is. He had taken a couple of pictures and he said, I've got my assistant here. We could give you a really good price if you did it today. And I said, well, as I told you on the phone. Yeah. And you could see the disappointment. I mean, he tried a couple of times to sell me. Yeah. The other guy, I think maybe, maybe we only had two. Another guy came out. And he started looking at it and he got up on the roof and he said, I think I know what the problem is. I can see why there were problems before. And he said, here's what I would do. Here's blah, 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 blah. But I don't want you to pay me anything until after the first rainstorm. Wow. Not only did we use him for that job, he's the guy we call. Yeah. Right. You know, it's just really very, very simple. Yep. So it's not this great touchy feely kind of thing where right. I'm going to circle. It's, it, it's, as you said, it's empathy and it's paying attention to, and it made it easy for me to say yes. Yes, exactly. Right. Yeah. Well, he, he, he under, I completely undermined the resistance, right. That's and, right. And, and built the support. Uh, it made it easy for you to say yes, which is the essence of, you know, getting someone to support you ultimately yeah. making it easy for them to feel good about saying yes to you. Yeah. Um, that that is phenomenal. So tell me a little bit about the nature of the work that you do with clients, uh, who you serve, and how you engage them um, in terms of change management. I love this framework of support and resistance, but how does that translate into a business for you, Rick? Yeah. Well, <clears throat> I have quit working on big projects from beginning to end, mm-hmm. like the consultant that you see on Monday morning, and then a year and a half later, you see them on Monday morning. Right, right, I, yeah. And by the way, I have nothing against that. I think there's yeah. a real need for that kind of, I just don't want to do it. What the, my consulting these days is primarily for planning teams or executive teams that have a big project. And they're saying, we have really got to build s- support or energy. We need a forward momentum and we need some help looking at that. And so What we'll do is I have uh, quite often, I have what I call strategic work sessions. I got that actually from a friend of mine. And so it's not team building. It's Mm -hmm. that group getting together and 
Oh, uh, the last one I did before COVID, which was face to face, was I think it was a couple days, uh, but you can do it in less time. And basically, I have a, a model. I call it the batteries not included map. None of our plans, none of our good plans, come with energy included. You need oh, a good. little warning sticker. Bat, you know, right. not so I, I asked people. You know, I said, so what do you anticipate for this kind of project? And they said, oh well, here's here's where energy drops off. Nine times out of 10. Well, why does it drop off there? And we use my three levels to look at that. And then they start playing around with the war. You know, so imagine you're six months in and the project starts to sink. And I can say, you know, I bet you the problem happened a lot earlier than last Tuesday. Right. Let's go back to the beginning. How, how, how did you involve these people right when you were first thinking that maybe you needed to do something? Oh, we don't call them them. I mean, so, <laughs> right, you know, yeah. and so I have a list, I don't know, it's like up to 23, 24 things that are kind of common errors and, that we make. And almost all of them are unforced errors and are avoidable. You know, so it's not like, well, if you get a new facility, well, and, and, and so whatever, thing about it is whatever plan they're using, I'm, I'm assuming I was doing that thing in an aerospace organization. I assume they know the aerospace business and, and building what they were building a whole lot better than all ever. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not, it's up to them to say, yes, this is a plan that could get us from here to there. Right. And what I do is say, all right, but you're going to need energy, mean, mean support in that to get there. Let's take a look at the, lap, the, at the entire plan and say, where is it really going to need energy? Mm -hmm. And how will you supply it? Because I mean, there's one uh, planning tool that'll go nameless. And there's a point, at, you know, I don't know what page, but like step 17, it says, deal with resistance. As if resistance is going to happen at 10 o'clock on Tuesday morning and we can deal with it. No, support and resistance are always alive. Yes. So how do, how do we pay attention to that? All, so my job is to teach them that, to teach them how, how, to, how to gather information at those three levels and how to use it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then if they need me, they can call for, for coaching sessions. But it's a pretty self-contained, uh, I hate to say a little engagement because I think it can have a big impact, but yeah. a little in terms of kind of cost and time and all that sort of thing. I think that's that's a really interesting model. And one of the things that I've been talking with some uh, colleagues and other partners about, and we've addressed it uh, loosely a couple of times in, in previous interviews on the podcast, is the nature of productizing consulting services. And I was just having a conversation, I don't know, a few interviews ago, and we talked about this concept of productization and it basically productization versus customization. And I don't think either one is right or wrong. I think they are what they are. And it depends on who you're serving and how you want to serve them as to which model uh, you know, serves you best. It sounds like in terms of your offering, you've, you've been able to take the best of what you do, the highest value use of your time and skill and expertise, and put it in these strategic work sessions and productize that offer in a way that's obviously meaningful to you, but could have substantial impact for the organization. And, and like you said, it's not like you're walking away. If they need you, they can access you uh, in the interim as need be. Do you perceive that offer in a productized type of way? Has that made it easier to talk about? Has that made it easier to, to sell and articulate the value of it? 
what, what's your experience with that so far? Yeah, that's a great set of questions. Um, it, it does make it easier because I'm talking about something rather than join me in this process. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. So, that's right. Yeah. I mean, There's a clear a delimited deliverable, right? As opposed yeah. to an abstract process. Yeah. But the one thing that I do to kind of keep it away from just an off-the-shelf product, because I, mm-hmm. I don't want to be doing that with my time. I've right. written books for that. They can buy books. <laughs> exactly. Uh, the is I, I I start with a really simple set of questions, and I can I can sell, tell them right now. There's nothing secret about them. And the first is scale one to five. How important is it going to be for you to build support for this change? Okay, scale one to five. And a high score would be a four or five. And right. by the way, if, if they say, well, maybe a three uh, or a two, I'll go, you know, you might do very well, but it, my stuff isn't going to work for you. Yeah. Because it sounds like you'll look for support when it's easy, but the other times it'll be like, well, we don't have time for that. Right. And that's that's going to, you know, that puts everything at risk. I said, so I'm just not a good fit for you. The second question often stops people in their tracks and it's, how scale of one to five, how willing are you to be influenced by the people you're trying to influence? Now, let me wow. say it again, because people have, it takes a second. The first time, by the way, the first time I ever gave that, uh, said that question in a group, people started laughing, that nervous laughter, and they started looking away. And I thought, I'm on to something. So yeah, yeah. Am, I, am I willing to, to be influenced by the very people who I'm trying to influence? And if the score is medium or to low, I'll go, my stuff really won't work. In fact, it'll seem, it could come across if you use my stuff like you're trying to manipulate them. And I said, so, so I'm not trying to convert them. I'm not right. an evangelist to say, look, is it, you know, is it a good fit? And then the third question, which is almost insignificant, is what would you say your skills are in building support for things because I can, I can train them in some stuff or suggest, mm-hmm. Hey, here's some places you could do, go get that. But those first two questions are the critical ones yeah. because I want, here's what I want. I want them when they say yes to working with me, that we're, we're on board with each other. That doesn't right. mean it's going to be easy, but that we right. both go, yeah, our values are aligned enough that I think we can work together. So that's good. That's really great. Um, to get there. No, no, but no, but I, but I think that model is really valuable and the filtering and qualification process that you use. I mean, you've broken it down basically to two questions to figure out uh, values is maybe not the right word, but to figure out where their values are related to at least, at least this particular change that they're focused Mm -hmm. on. Right. Um, And it's, they're almost like kickout questions. Um, at the very least, they're discussion questions, right? They, they are their threes could become fours or fives, I suppose, after you have a conversation with yeah. them. Uh, but their ones or twos probably aren't going to get there. So, probably not, no. yeah, I, yeah. I, let me let me add something to that because I, first of all, I really was happy when I came up with those questions. But what I started to notice is that people sort of know that oh, he's looking for a four or five, and so I because and so I really I have to then do some pushing pretty quickly go, you know, there are going to be times when it's going to seem awfully inconvenient to bring other people in the room. There are going to be times when, so that they really know what they're saying yes to rather than just the platitude. And that, when I didn't do those kind of follow-up questions, uh, frankly, it ended up the clients were wasting their money. Well, and, and, and by proxy, I mean, I guess you're still getting paid for some of your time, but it wasn't the best use of your time because you could have been working with someone else who it really would have affected more, right? Yes. Yeah. And I don't, I don't like, you know, 
<clears throat> I don't like to go into something and then realize uh, they're wasting their money. And of course, so I'm wasting my time. I mean, it just it doesn't feel right. So I, I really want to get into situations where for them and me, it's working. And, you know, and if it's not that we could talk to each other and think, yeah, there's something we need to do. You know, right? So, yeah, that's good. That's good. Tell me about the nature of, of your business development uh, process, either currently or in the past. Obviously, we're we're still, you know, as we're recording this, we're still in the midst of this weird world we're in and probably going to be in this in some version of this weird world for quite some time. The world will never yeah. be the same. Um, but what is your in terms of business development and the nature of how you built your network over time? Where do your clients come from? How, how does how does that sort of evolve? And and where does your business come from? Basically, is the question. By the way, uh, your listeners are not going to want to take notes on this one because I'm not. Good at that. uh, <laughs> That's so, okay. That's okay. Well, the first thing is I, uh, in 1996, my book came out called Beyond the Wall of Resistance. And that was about everything we've been talking about. And prior to that, I had written a book called Caught in the Middle. And then I wrote a book called Feedback Toolkit. Feedback Toolkit is still in print. I, it's, uh, but I don't do that kind of work. I mean, I don't do workshops on feedback. Um, so the, those two books were interesting and they got me somewhere. Beyond the Wall of Resistance, the phone started ringing. I mean, a lot. And uh, the publicist for the book, I mean, he would call me and say, hey, can you get up to New Jersey and go on CNBC tomorrow morning with someone? So, hey, uh, can you talk to this a writer from the Wall Street Journal? He's doing a front page story on, can, can uh, a person from Fortune is, and it was like, oh, wow. hey, uh, can somebody come into that workshop you're doing and they want to do something for NBC nightly news. I mean, it was, this was this amazing flurry of stuff. Yeah. Um, I've written other books since then, never uh, with that kind of thing. And that two things happened. I mean, obviously the phone rang and it started allowing me to focus all of my attention just on this, these models that I had developed. Yeah. And I had been doing a lot of other stuff that all I, that, you know, stuff I still think is legitimate, but, you know, I would just, if you said, Hey, you know, somebody who can do, can you do Myers-Briggs? I go, I can, and I'm not going to here in DC area, throw a rock and you'll find somebody who's good and probably better than me. Right. I mean, it's, um, so <clears throat> that was, that book was, uh, it's supposed to change other people's lives. It changed my life. Mm-hmm. I mean, so for a number of years, uh, I would give speeches. Uh, I started make, doing speeches as uh, not just as a way of promoting the book, but it was, uh, you know, pe- I was, I think I was good at it. People liked it. Uh, in fact, I had somebody call my office. I have, do I have them here? I have my business card. I have this cycle of change that I use. And on the back of the card is this little cycle. So I was giving a speech at some conference at a university and this woman called my office the next day and said, Hey, uh, I heard Rick speak yesterday and he uh, handed out these cards of his, could we get a hundred? And my assistant said, well, yeah, of course. Uh, why? And she said, well, I'm the head of change strategy for this offshore drilling for this oil company. And we we're changing how we're thinking about change based on his speech. So I wow. thought, okay, it's a legitimate kind of intervention. So, right. and that then led to other work. Mm-hmm. Uh, in recent years, uh, the phone doesn't ring as much, and I do very little to make it ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
So the stuff I do now, which I think is is helping, uh, is I still speak. Everything virtual is virtual. I was doing a, a session in uh, Copenhagen on Monday, but once again, it's all virtual. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I get I get referral work. Uh, yeah. Some people in Denmark actually created a business simulation, kind of uh, in large part based on my models. And so there's a lot of people in Denmark and Belgium and uh, Sweden who know my stuff. And so I'll get yeah. calls sometimes from them. Um, I, I put out uh, a newsletter. I would like to say I do it every week. I don't. But something I, what I try to do is something really short. In fact, somebody yesterday, a fellow consultant yesterday said, you know, Rick, what I really like about your stuff, it's very short. It's to the point. And then you say, hey, and if you'd like to learn more, I've got this article or this white paper on my website. Click here. And she said, it's just, you know, you know and that keeps my name alive. Uh, and what I need to do is start doing that more mm. religiously. Uh, and I'm also starting to do, uh, I've been doing YouTube videos, uh, but I'm really trying to do them much more regularly. Mm-hmm. My, and my videos that I'm doing are kind of Wayne's World quality videos. I don't know if you, I mean, you know, it's like okay. two guys in their parents' basement kind of. Yeah. Thing. The quality of the video is what your viewers are looking at right now. You know, so I, I don't have fancy graphics. I've thought about all that. And I thought, no, you know, I just want to talk to people. Mm-hmm. And I want to keep it. I, my goal is to keep it five minutes. And mm-hmm. I, uh, I, so far, I don't think I've really gone over that very much. And I, that's kind of my strategy. So that works. That works. I, and no doubt you have a, a pretty healthy network of uh, past clients and partners and colleagues that you've built over, over the years. So um, no, I mean, I think that's a, that's a solid marketing mix and um, yeah, I appreciate you sharing it and, and certainly talking about, you know, that the primary book or beyond the wall of resistance. Uh, one that that, uh, yeah. yeah I, I've got to, I've got to pick up that. Also, you just uh, released or just wrote a new book. Uh, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that. And I think it's available. So uh, definitely let people know how they can get a hold of it. Okay. I actually want to say one more thing about the, my, my approach to marketing. Yeah. I got, a, I got an email actually last week from a guy who works for an insurance company that's, uh, well, I, I won't go into what the business is, but um, I worked with them probably in the, I don't know, mid to late 90s. Okay. But this guy who sent me a note is now an executive vice president. He's, uh, we're connected on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. He gets my newsletter. I don't think we've talked in 15, 20 years. And he said, hey, we've got five major conferences coming up with our clients uh, next year. Are you interested? Uh, and so we're going to talk on uh, Friday about yeah. that to see That's if it works. So just basically keeping my name alive enough that he kept going, oh, yeah, I like Rick. I like what he's doing. So. Well, it's about planting. It's about planting the seed and continuing the cultivation, right? And I think that's where so many people, um, so many people miss the boat. Is they think that really is the right metaphor, right? The gardening metaphor really is the right metaphor. It is. It is not about um, going out and shooting the game, bringing it back, eating it, having to go out again. You can do it that way, and you'll have some success, but it's short term. It's much much more effective to plant the seed, do good work. 
and continue to cultivate that and let that grow over time. That's exactly, I mean, you're harvesting the fruit of your labor from back in the day, only because though you kept cultivating, right? If you had stopped cultivating, he wouldn't remember. He might remember that you, that you did a great job, but would it be easy to get in touch with you and right? That kind of thing. So, yeah. And by the way, I really, I, there, there's uh, some fellow consultants, I'll get like an email a day. Mm-hmm. I, I, I just, <laughs> unless I'm really asking for that right. kind of, you know, it's just, it's what like, whoa, whoa, that's way too much. Yeah. And so I rarely open the things and it's, yes. maybe it works beautifully for some people. I don't know, but it sure doesn't work for me. So, yeah, and I think, yeah, it's a great, it's a great point. I think, I think the important piece to that is it's about having the right kind of message and knowing your audience, right? What, what, what do they want? What do they expect? And, and yeah. meeting, meeting them there. Right. Yeah. And it sounds like your, 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 your pseudo weekly uh, newsletter it sounds like it's, it's doing its job. So, so yeah. yeah. So you you'd ask me another question before I pull this back. Yeah, I want to hear about uh, I want to hear about the new book that's out. Oh, the new book. Yeah, the new book. Yeah, yeah it's um, it's all based on the work that we've been talking about. Those three levels are the foundation for everything I do. And this book is seventy pages. It's called Seizing Moments of Possibility. I have to read the subtitle to you: Ways to Trigger Energy and Forward Momentum on Your Ideas and Plans. So the idea here is how can you, whether you're a project leader or somebody working on a project, what can you do to get energy moving in the direction you need it to go in? And people seem to really pick up on the fact that I'm using the word energy. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's so that you have that energy and forward momentum and it's always alive, either working for you or against you. So, so the book is I hope really practical. I did a lot of test runs with stuff beforehand and it has like nine application activities. And I'll I'll give you one, for example, Mm -hmm. Uh, there's a great philosopher uh, named Yogi Berra. I hear he also played baseball. Uh, (laughs) And he said, you can, you can observe a lot just by watching. Right. Yeah. (laughs) So we were talking about listening before Um, it. That's the concept. And so, I, I say in here, so how do you do that? I mean, if you're watching, uh, and a good way to watch at first is not to have a theory in mind. Um, you know, the, the, oh, I can't remember his first name. His last name's Ono, O-H-N-O, worked, was instrumental in the Toyota production system. Okay. Mm-hmm. And there's a thing called the Ono Circle where, and I was in a training program where I had to do it. I would go out on this floor and they would say, stand there for 30 minutes and just see what you see. And he would do it and went in for real. And you might be out there for hours. And he'd say, you know, okay, so what'd you notice? And if you didn't notice the right stuff, he'd say, oh, maybe you should stand there for a couple more hours. Yeah. The idea is that you're not going out there with some preconceived anything. Like right. I was noticing the amount of movement going on that seemed to be wasted. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so then, so that's the first one. And then to say, all right, now that you're kind of, you know, priming the pump with that, what are some lenses you could use? And one is my three levels, uh, but there are others and you don't try them all, but just like a photographer, they pull a lens out and go, that's, that's the one to use. And so observing, and I would put in listening to that is key before you do anything else. Okay. And so there's a bunch of, 
uh, tools there. But the big thing that I'm trying to say in this book, and I want people to, to, to use, is there are so many good tools out there for managing change in projects. I mean, and good training, uh, consultants who are dedicated to doing this, and yet people still complain about the failure rate. And I started to look at that, and I and behind me in my other office, I mean, I've got a full bookshelf of just change management, leadership, influence stuff. And I started thinking, all right, so these are good. I, I like these books. What's wrong? And what was wrong, and this is where I came up with the expression, is all of those things, including things I've written, need to have a warning sticker on back that says warning batteries not included. Yeah. So so how do you how do you build energy in? Mm-hmm. And the more I looked at it, in a lot of organizations, change management, the, the human part, is an add-on. Like, if we have time, we'll do it. Right. And that's pretty risky. And so what I'm suggesting is that we need to be more like baristas. So uh, I will get – no, I'll really explain this <laughs> as he looks skeptically. No, I, I'm, I'm fascinated. I love your okay. metaphors. Go ahead. All right. So our – you know, in our neighborhood, we've got a coffee shop that's finally open again. And I'll go there and get in line. And invariably, there's somebody there who orders a latte. Yeah. And never once have I heard that person go, hey, um, give me a latte, but hold the milk. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it's there for somebody who doesn't know, there are two essential ingredients in a latte, and that's steamed milk and espresso, period. Right. You right. can have doodads and stuff, but that's it. And so I believe in change management, the human part is an integral part of what's going on, just yeah. like the coffee. So how do I do what I'm doing in a way that has a chance to build support? And I can give you a couple of quick examples if you like. Yeah, let's do it real okay. quick. All right. So I have a friend who's a nuclear physicist. And when he makes presentations to fellow scientists in his organization, they generally are to get their support for, okay, we can, you know, allocate resources for this and do it. And he said, the problem is we have to use PowerPoint slides. And he said, it, it just puts people to sleep. Right. Yeah. He said, he said, but he said, I can't not do it or else people go, oh, he didn't prepare. Ah, okay. So, okay. So we were talking and he called me a couple of weeks later and he said, I got it. He said, I had this thing come up and I'm, I thought, okay, how many slides would I typically use for this presentation? It was something like 50. I mean, and for like an hour or something, you know. A lot, yeah. Yeah, and then he thought, all right, what's the minimum number I could use that would let people know I actually prepared? Mm -hmm. The minimum number was five. And he said, here's the amazing thing. I covered all the same material, but because I wasn't reading from these slides, there was room for conversation. Yeah. People started getting interested and saying, well, are you talking about this? People started saying, hey, I'm kind of interested in that. Can we talk more about it? He said, so normally people are kind of comatose at the end of these meetings. And here they actually energy. Yeah. yeah. So the, all he did, it was the same group of people, the same conference room, the same bad coffee. The only <laughs> thing he did is he had fewer slides. Yeah. I'll give you one other story. That's great. A guy named Ted Castle uh, owns a, a company called Rhino Foods. They make dessert ingredients. So you would okay. never go to the store to buy it. But Ben and Jerry's buys their material. Okay. Mm-hmm. So he called all the employees together. He had 90, I think 90 employees. And he said, I've got some really bad news. 
the industry is in a downturn and it's staying there. Normally we get into downturns and they turn around. He said, this hasn't turned around. And I've been very worried and I've looked for all kinds of places to make cuts and that. And he said, I've done everything I know how to do. The only thing left. And he said, I really hate to say this is to downsize. He said, we have never done it in the history of our company before, but he said, I don't know of an alternative. Okay. Then he added one thing. Didn't make the meeting any longer. Just added one thing. He said, but God, I got to tell you, any of you have an idea that you think might either bring in more income or, you know, uh, reduce our expenses. I will, you know, I'm skeptical, but I'm willing to. Yeah. Okay. So 90 employees, they came up with 111 ideas. Wow. And he pulled, he got people together and said, all right, we got to do something with this. And they came up with something like five major strategies and they applied them and they, they weathered the storm with no downsizing. Two years later, the industry turned down again. They pulled it off the shelf and did it. Wow. So he could have said, no, we're going to go off and have a team building retreat for three days. And we're going to do this and nothing wrong with any of that. But sometimes yeah. what we're doing can just be, what if I shut up right now and ask, Listen. so what do you think? You know, yeah. it's, it, it can be that simple. So that I keep going back to how do you, how do you do really small things for the meetings that you already have going on, the mm-hmm. conversations you already have going on. So, oh, and the book is on my website. It's free there. If That's awesome. Buy, if you want to buy a paperback or get the audio version with me reading it, you can buy it on Amazon. But the, okay. the ebook version is just rickmauer.com and it's right there on the homepage and you can access it and download That's- it. That's tremendous. And we'll, we'll obviously include that, that link in the show notes as well here. So people can easily get access. That's awesome. Thank you, Rick. Uh, and fantastic stories and examples. You know, as we come to the end here, um, uh, there's been, I always ask the question, what, what business or life lessons might you share with the audience, right? That, that they might take away and, and use bits of wisdom that you've learned over your time. You've already shared a ton, uh, but I'm going to put you on the spot again. Um, what, uh, what, and it can be something you've said before, but what, what, uh, what points of wisdom or gold nuggets might you share with everybody today? And again, it doesn't even have to be necessarily about business, but it certainly can be. Okay. It's about business, but, um, but I won't be addressing the stuff we've talked about so far. Fair enough. When was it about 15 years ago, I had three major consulting assignments Okay. And if you had looked at the proposals I wrote and what I did, you've gone, well, you're really good, Rick. I mean, you're, you're really good. <laughs> okay, you know, this is not the end of the story, by the way. Uh, and it, I ended up hating all three of those. Mm. One is something I said yes to. It just didn't interest me. There was a time as a younger consultant, I would have been really interesting. I wasn't. And consequently, without realizing it, I was phoning it in. So clearly my, you know, uh, I'm very embarrassed by that, but it's, that was one. The other two, uh, <clears throat> one organization manufacturing, I said, why, why did you call me? Why do you want me? And I said, well, you think differently than we do, which is complimentary. The problem is I thought differently than they did. So I would come up with stuff and they wouldn't do it. And yeah. they'd say, well, give us some new stuff. And I said, you haven't used the old stuff. And right, so right. this was a bad match. And then the third one, there was it was working with top uh, top leadership and top union leadership, and they're saying, "Oh, we really want to work together. We need to." And da da da. No, they didn't. They <laughs> they didn't want to. 
They just wanted to have some consultants and see. And anyway, so I'm, I said to my wife, I said, you know, maybe I'm no, no good at consulting anymore. And she, <laughs> said, and she said, well, you know, I don't think you've lost your skills in the last six months. Maybe you were never any good. Now, by the way, she's, jo- she's joking. I love the, the reaction. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a great line. My, my wife would appreciate that line too. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, I'm talking to uh, a former student of mine, a woman who's now a professor at Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. And I was telling her the story and she said, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't tell you the rest. Kathy said, you know, you've taken up music. And I used to be a professional musician. She said, and you love it. Why, why don't you just back off from work a little bit? And play more music, which sounded nice, but I didn't do it. So I'm talking to my friend, Kim, the, uh, who'd been a student. And she said, well, uh, so why aren't you listening to your wife? And I said, well, yeah. Uh, I said, you know, it's, I don't want to retire. I don't, can't even get the concept, but maybe I'll change my mind or maybe something will happen. So I just want to make sure there's enough money there to know that if I wanted to, she said, how much more, how much money you need? And I said, I don't know. And she said, that'll keep you working. And <laughs> what and what I did huh. was, and this has really had a huge impact on my career, is I only take work that I think will give me as much pleasure as music. Wow. Yeah. So right beside me, you can't see it. I have two horns. I have a music stand. Uh, something that I've done earlier today and I will do after we're, we're done talking is practice. And I love it. Just just picking up the horn and practicing is fun. It's, I love playing big gigs, but that haven't done any of those in a long time. But just making music or trying to make music gives me a lot of pleasure. And so right. I can talk with somebody on the phone and I, I just have that internal barometer to kind of go, you know, I don't think so. And I don't always guess right, but the ratio is really in my favor. I wish now as a young consultant, if you give me that advice, I probably would have gone, oh, that's kind of interesting, but I gotta, I gotta get work. Right. Yeah. That's sure. You know, so it's it's kind of a hard thing to to take on early. But had I taken on earlier in my career, I think I would have said no to things that were yeah. not really a good fit. For instance, I uh, I can facilitate meetings like if a client is doing something, we're working together. But just to go in to facilitate, like hire me to facilitate, I don't want to do it. It doesn't right. interest me at all. And I've said yes to that. And consequently, I'm I'm there and I'm like a C plus student. Where right. if I'm going into I'm doing my stuff. Yeah. A plus plus. I'm an A exactly. And so um, that that to me uh, was you know great advice from Kathy and from Kim and uh, and now I'm doing that and it's you know, it pays off. So I have, so my life is really very full. That is, uh, that is phenomenal advice. And everybody has their own music, right? For some people, it would exactly. be music, uh, but everybody has their own thing that they can compare their work to compared to their yeah. pleasure. And I think it is an important note because we're not, yes, we're working to make a living and we're working to, you know, make money and provide for ourselves and our family. But um, the whole point in working for yourself and having a business like this is, is to, be fulfilled by it in a meaningful yeah, way. Exactly. Yeah. And I think it's fantastic advice. Uh, Rick, uh, you're a fun dude. Let's, let's, <laughs> let's end, let's yeah, end the session the same way we began. <laughs> you're a fun dude. No, I, I sincerely, sincerely appreciate you carving out the time. I know your time is incredibly valuable and uh-huh. I really appreciate you being here and sharing so much 
wisdom with me and uh, everybody who's listening. I've got pages of notes and I know, uh, I know we'll be talking again soon. You're too fun to talk to. So if you're willing to take my call, we got to talk again soon. Oh, we know we do. This is, this, this is a great conversation. I really enjoy it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. We'll make sure all the information is in the show notes. Um, it, it's rickmauer.com. Uh, people can also find you on LinkedIn. Uh, any any other uh, those are the main ways people should uh, should look to engage with you if they've got a referral or interested in learning more. The <clears throat> my website has my mailing address and email and phone number. Good. So okay. if you've got something and you just want to talk, I mean, give me a call or you know send me an email and say let's find a time to talk, which is probably more reliable. And Maurer, by the way, is M A U R E R. Yes, thank you for letting spelled many different ways. So. Yeah. So the website is, uh, again, it'll be in the show notes, but just so we get it out verbally here, www.rick, Rick, and then yep. Maurer, M-A-U-R-E-R.com. That's it. Perfect. Excellent. Very good. good. Hey, Thank you again, so. my friend. Okay. Appreciate it. For Consulting with Authority, this is Scott Cantrell, as always, wishing you all the best of success. Thank you for listening. I hope you got a ton of value out of this episode. And before we go, I want to thank the sponsor of our show, Smart Solutions Media. Smart Solutions Media empowers business owners, consultants, and other independent professionals to easily attract better prospects and transform them into long-term clients. If you're a B2B consultant or service professional and would like to start filling your pipeline with better quality prospects, visit us on the web at smartsolutionsmedia.com to learn more about what we can do to help you. Be sure to complete this short two-minute accelerated growth scorecard you can find on the website and you'll receive a complimentary strategy session where we'll give you specific insights and recommendations to help you attract high value clients. Until next time, make sure you are consulting with authority.